Kate, owner of 123, a business dedicated to supporting leaders who want to be their best selves every day. Because your employees deserve a leader who does their best. Leading is hard work, but the chairs here at 123 are comfy. Please have a seat and let's start the conversation. The title says it all. Employee-employer relationships are on thin ice. This article from the Association of Talent Development, they share a summary from Gartner's 2024 HR Priorities Survey that describes that same relationship between employees and employers as unsettled going into the new year. The top five predictions for those HR priorities are manager development, organizational culture, HR technology, change management, and then last, career management and internal mobility. There is nothing new on that list. So why are we still talking about it? Why is it still central to making work work? It is hopefully common knowledge by this point that the experience that employees have affects the entire performance of the organization. One of the problems that leaders and HR and businesses face is that the employee experience and, in turn, engagement encompasses so many facets of work. So for our purposes today, we're actually going to take the classic approach and start at the very beginning with onboarding and orientation. This component of employment relies on two parties. There's the organization, typically represented by a function of human resources or learning and development, and then the leader. So in today's conversation, I want us to toggle between these two parties to explore and understand the responsibilities of each and to get at what are the best practices for establishing an employee experience literally from day one. And for this conversation, I am joined by a former classmate, Maggie, whom I will allow to introduce herself in a moment who is an experienced L&D professional, a lovely human being, crazy funny and whip smart. Maggie, welcome to the Comfy Chairs. Thank you, Kate. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I have, as you mentioned, about 10 years of L&D experience, starting as a coordinator, mm-hmm. moving into um, an analyst role, and then really finding my ground in strategy and consultancy. And through a lot of that time, I spent on onboarding um, and and found a true passion for it, which a lot of people don't really find onboarding as fun. But for some (laughs) reason, I do. (laughs) It is kind of like a no man's land, isn't it? (laughs) It's like a necessary evil. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start with that. Why do you have a passion for onboarding? I think onboarding is... As you kind of have have mentioned, it really sets the stage. Um, First impressions mean a lot to people. Yeah. And this is really a first impression for a company as they're hiring in new people. Um, it's, It's a way for the company to put their best foot forward Mm -hmm. um, and really help to set the stage for not only the first couple of weeks or months, but really an employee's entire career. Yeah, I think it's it's incredibly pow- empowering um, for companies to create impactful onboarding programs mm-hmm. um, 
and is really important. You said something that I, I think is one of the mindsets that's vital to successful onboarding and what it means for that long-term employee experience, that it's for the employer to put their best foot forward. Because so often the relationship between employees and employers has traditionally been what is the employee bringing? What the workforce wants these days is turning that on its head, that we have to understand that it is it is in fact a relationship and relationships involve both people contributing, which makes me think that we need to dial ourselves back a little bit and define employee engagement and employee experience. No surprise, I have my own opinions and definitions of those. I would love to hear how you define employee engagement. Employee engagement is such a funny topic because I mm-hmm. feel like it's come, um, it's become a hot topic over the past few years, oh, yeah. right? The late 2010s was all about employee engagement. How do we get people excited about coming to work? How do we give them pizza? You know, <laughs> my gosh, <laughs> but pizza it, and candy bars, exactly. <laughs> Happy hours, <laughs> but it's really about the whole self. Yeah. Um, I think employee engagement is recognizing that people have lives outside of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's recognizing that people spend a lot of time at work. Mm-hmm. And how do you marry those two and make it the best experience for the person as a person? Yeah. What is the environment that people need in the workplace so that they can bring their best whole selves for the purpose of being great performers on the job. That employee-employer relationship only exists because there's a job to be done. So we have to marry, you know, just like we need to marry the, you're a person with a life, you're here most of your you know, waking day. We have to marry those two mindsets. We also need to marry the fact that the reason that we need people to be seen and acknowledged and respected and cared for as whole beings is because they have a job to do. And I think if we can get to a place where those things are so intrinsically woven together, nobody can see my little (laughs) hand gesture right now, um, then we can be successful. Because it would be pretty exciting for us to figure this out and get on to the next set of priorities. Talk to me about the designing and onboarding experience. What are the fundamentals, the non-negotiables? I'd I'd like to start um, with a a little bit of a segmentation. I think you mentioned orientation Mm -hmm. before, which is different from onboarding, which is also different from being ramped in your role. And I think that there's a lot of mixed usage of those words and I I do it myself Um, obviously I do too (laughs) oh and I want to if I can interrupt and kind of insert a footnote I am I am cutting a place at the moment that somebody accepts a job offer and everything before that while it influences the employee experience for the purposes of this conversation I want to classify that as candidate experience so it's that point where yep I'm going to enter the relationship with this employer as their employee And that's a little more black and white than the actual thing, like any relationship. But I think it helps us, as you said, there's segmentation that we need to do. So what's the candidate experience? And then that point where I say, 
I'm going to do this. That's when we start talking about onboarding, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's the end of my interruptions. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that clarification. By definition, onboarding means organizational socialization. So okay. when you think about what those two words mean in terms of a new hire coming on after they've accepted their offer, that means that they are understanding their organization. They are feeling included in their organization and they're being set up for success. They're being socialized into the culture of this company. And I think, you know, there, there's obviously a bit of a, a mark between pre-day one and post-day one onboarding, mm-hmm. whether you call that pre-boarding or you call it all onboarding, you know, that's kind of up to you. But I think that experience of of ease and um, ensuring that someone is set up for success is, is really the kind of crux of it all. Yeah. Um, when you think about post-day one onboarding, I, I'm not a DEI expert by any means, but I think inclusion in this is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, onboarding does not take two weeks or two months. It, it could take up to a year as someone is figuring out where they sit within the organization, mm-hmm. how they are contributing to the overall goals of the organization. Belonging. Yes, yeah, exactly. That sense of belonging and can I identify the role that I play? And in some ways we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy that we've We've taken care of all the, you know, kind of necessary foundational things. And then we start making those connections to scaffold up and help people reach that point of actualization, which in this context is performing to my best. Exactly. Love it. Something you said I thought is important to emphasize that it's, there's not necessarily a distinct timeline on what our onboarding talk gate onboarding really is it can be a day for some people or it can be a, a very long-term thing depending on the job and the person so there's a distinction between onboarding as an adoption the socialization and an onboarding program I think you're starting to take us into that space between what the organization is responsible for and what the leader needs to do and I'm curious given your expertise what does good onboarding look like from that functional place then I'd like us to kind of bridge over and talk about once the organization does its check 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 what do you look for leaders to know do and behave the ways that they should behave to facilitate that process for their their new employee yeah I, I think, uh, as you said, there has to be some sort of time limit on an onboarding mm-hmm. program. You can't just extend it on forever and ever. Onboarding programs from an L&D perspective is all about what are those foundational things that everyone has to know. Then you have to ensure that people are being hold, held accountable to mm-hmm. using those resources to operating in the right processes. And that really comes from the manager. So 
I think that's where that overlap lies. And then when you move out of an onboarding program, there has to be some sort of upskilling and ongoing coaching from a manager to continue to build one's skills from not just basics, basic knowledge, you know, average knowledge or average skill to being a high performer or to figuring out gap areas. Um, L&D does not obviously have the resources to do that for every single individual. And Mm -hmm. that's, I think, where the manager's, a really big part of a manager's role comes into play Mm -hmm. when you think about um, someone coming out of onboarding is identifying those gaps and determining how do we help close those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think it's interesting, Maggie, you're you're talking about the first couple of those, um, of Gartner's HR priorities. There's the leader manager development. Do they have the critical thinking? Do they have the knowledge of the employment life cycle? Do they have the skills, both hard and soft, to um, to navigate that? But then there's also the organizational culture piece. That what one of the things that onboarding can and should do is demonstrate to people this is. This is what we all value. And being an employee at Company X means we do this, we don't do this, we value this, so that people have a topographical map of what their journey is going to look like. I love that visual. When you think of a topographical map, there's, you know, all of these different types of terrains that you're yeah. you're going to be going through. And I, I think that that's a great um, analogy for an employee experience. Mm -hmm. As someone's manager, they should be your guide Mm -hmm. through the mountains, across the desert, you know, through the plains and um, helping you along that journey. So I love that analogy. Thank you. Would you please for us differentiate between onboarding and orientation? Say you are right. We use this interchangeably. It's it's a little bit like using engagement and experience interchangeably, but in practice, they're actually very different. Yeah, when you think of onboarding, I think is more general in okay. that it encompasses culture, mm-hmm. it encompasses experience, and that overall socialization to a company. Whereas orientation comes from to orient yourself. Yes. Right. Orient comes back to that map. It's yeah. which direction am I heading? Yeah. It, it's, are, we, are we like setting people on that journey facing the right direction? Kind of those fundamental things that everyone needs to know. So mm-hmm. what is the company's high level mission? What are our goals? But then I also think it includes, includes some of those more tactical items mm-hmm. for an employee. So my benefits and you know, my 401k, how do I set everything up so that I don't have to worry about it as I am being an employee mm-hmm. here? So orienting yourself into this environment um, so that you can become an onboarded and ramped employee. I'm going to, it's going to sound like I'm going wildly off track for a second. <laughs> but as we've been talking about, you know, maps and journeys and what keeps cropping up in my head, my husband and I have been watching this show called Alone. Yes. I love alone. Oh yeah, we're we've been binging like we're already on season three. 
for people that may not know what that is, 10 people with survival experience, skills, and training are dropped off in a very rugged part of the world. And they have, you know, basic gear, they have camera equipment, and they're allowed to select 10 items. Last person standing wins, wins a very large sum of money. And the reason I'm kind of making this connection in my head, not only because I've been binging this show, is that onboarding is sort of the, do you have, do you have the equipment you need, right? Do you know, do you know where we're going? Like we're going to be putting you on this terrain. This is your site. I think one of the things that happens though, is we do kind of treat it like a loan. Okay. We've given you your equipment, we've done the medical checkup, but we drop you off and then we go away. Successful onboarding, that handoff to orientation to get to the point of being a ramped employee, we fail when we just do a drop off. And they're like, we may be back in a couple of weeks to check on your health. How do we make the, the process integrated effectively? Again, love the analogies, <laughs> It's a blend, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be some sort of mixed support system. Mm -hmm. And uh, tying back into the employee engagement, I think you, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that it you have to tie it to performance. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, employees need the right enablement tools. They need the right support systems, knowledge bases in order to be able to be engaged in order to perform mm -hmm. effectively. 100%. And I think that that support system, as you come out of your quote-unquote onboarding program and get into the quote-unquote real world of the job, has to be a gradual send-off. Mm -hmm. like, whether that is ongoing weekly checks or mixed manager one-on-ones um, where they have guides, talk tracks, you know, things that they need to be covering and mm -hmm. reinforcing with their employees. I, I think it can be a blend. Going back to your Gartner, that um, article, that manager relationship mm -hmm. to employees is just, it, it's the number one reason why people leave companies. And so yeah. having that, I think, and having the manager on the side of the organization is so crucial. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it also starts to set, you know, one of the other reasons people are leaving work uh, is because they don't have a sense of, I'm going to grow here. By having a system that supports people in their first days, first months, and evidence of leaders being trained and prepared, what you're doing is creating this environment where folks see, I'm going to be helped along the way. I have a responsibility for engaging with it, but there is development in the way this company treats its employees from the start. Yeah, and I think that if you're able to put that foot forward in the beginning, mm -hmm. it's much more difficult to turn around the opposite way. Yeah. Whereas if you don't set that foot forward in the beginning, it's way more difficult to then prove to a tenured employee, we have all of these opportunities because you've already lost them at that point. Let's talk about change management for a moment, which I know is another area of interest and expertise for you. If a company is like, oh, we, we need to change this. We weren't doing it well. We need to do it now. 
tenure employees can look at way new employees are being treated. It's different. Why are they getting that and I didn't? So in the change management process, how do we communicate, hey, we're headed this new direction with onboarding, orientation, ramping up to tenured employees in a way that won't make them feel like you know the redheaded stepchild? I think the big question to answer from a leadership perspective is why now? And I think answering that simple question will give tenured employees the context and understanding of, hey, when I came in, it wasn't time. But now, you know, we're trying to make investments in in our growth. We're trying to retain people. We are, you know, looking to bring in a top new talent to to help me as an employee with my bandwidth. So I think it's that why now and how does it benefit me is going to be really, really important for leaders um, mm-hmm. when they might, you know, be be shading their, their tenured employees a little bit. But mm-hmm. I think providing that context will really help. I think also helping the tenured staff understand that they have a role to play in it, that yeah. it's not going to be successful without them. Exactly. You know, we are we are entirely reimagining how we onboard new people because you've been here, you've seen that it's not working. But if it's going to be successful, we need the team members that are receiving, that are welcoming new coworkers to understand, be on board, and continue in the great work that they've done so that we can all be successful. And it tend yeah, again, I keep coming back to this. I feel like I'm a broken record. But we can't be binary about it. That there has to be communication in those moments of making a change where people could feel left out, where we create this. This is for you as well in our communication. You are part of this. This is for you and we need you in order to be successful. If all of these priorities are actually going to be there, if the thin ice is not going to melt or crack on us, if we're going to settle those relationships, one of the things that I think learning and development needs to do for leaders is start helping them be able to hold those two, those two ideas together. It's something I've talked about before as having double vision, that I understand that onboarding is a program and a process. And I engage in the program at key points, but I'm managing it as a process. That onboarding is about the new employee, but it's also about my established team. So that I'm creating a team. I'm not just bringing somebody you know new and shiny in. What are your thoughts on how we can help leaders get to that place where they're doing both? I think that's a really, really good question. I, it, I, I think of having a really clear vision for your team is going to help both tenured people and new people coming in feel like they're working towards a common goal. As a good leader, I think recognizing that people on your team have strengths and recognizing that new people coming in have strengths and your job as a leader is really to make sure that 
these strengths are being used to their fullest potential in order to work as a team. So you get past the, you know, norming stage and you are performing and that is that is i mean the ultimate goal right having that kind of change management lens and bringing people through that process as hey i recognize you and i value you for what you bring to the table i also recognize and value this new person and what they bring to the table and i think that this is an area that they can help and an area how you can help them you talked about having a clear vision for your team totally agree i think you're exactly right and how do people create vision well isn't that the question isn't it though yeah <laughs> I, I think vision can can come in a in a couple of different ways personally i think vision can be in some ways short term yes i also think vision can be long term mm -hmm. in a in a sense having some sort of clear actions and almost behaviors mm -hmm. that you want people to exude mm -hmm. is what I think makes a good vision because without that it doesn't it's not attainable. No one knows how to do it. So I think having those behavioral aspects to a vision is really important. Maggie, one of the reasons I love you is you articulate things so clearly and with this great light touch. Um, yeah, I've said the same thing. You can have a short-term vision and a long-term vision. There's the organizational vision, you know, the department, the team, the individual, and because I'm very particular about defining terms, uh, in its broadest, a vision is a compelling picture of the future that's what you're trying to do for your people and there's creating the vision the i have i can see that picture and i can articulate it to people but then there's managing the vision and that's where we start to get into what is it going to take for us to get there this is how we need to act now and what we'll need to act like when we get forward into that new this is how we need to think about the work now and in process. And these are the new mindsets that will make that picture a reality. You also talked about strengths. And I think that is a great topic to get into because it, it does connect to how we get people socialized and acclimated. And it also plays such a role in that overall experience. So leading from strengths. Let's talk about that for a bit. At the core of people, we want to be valued, right? Mm -hmm. And I think playing into people's strengths is one of the easiest ways to do that. By identifying what people are good at, where they excel, what they're passionate about, um, I, I think are ways that you can help to show people that they are valued. And this doesn't have to be, you know, anything crazy. It can be a simple acknowledgement during a one-on-one. -on -one. Like, hey, I recognize that you are, are really good at Excel. And then as you continue to do that with the rest of your team, I think that it's something that people will understand that you as a leader can recognize those strengths. And they value you as a leader for being able to do that um, and, and being able to understand 
how do those strengths play together into a cohesive team? During the early days of an employee's life with an organization, how can we discover strengths? As a manager or as a HR team? Yes. Yes and yes. I'm going to start with the L&D team. When you're facilitating a session, you know, you should be asking thought-provoking questions, questions that require critical thinking skills and, and being able to understand and, and discern whether someone is using critical thinking. Problem-solving skills, I think, is one really good example of figuring out, does someone get it? Do they have those types of strengths? And, and how do I figure out what other strengths they have? Do you advocate for or believe that there are any assessments that an organization can use? I'm smiling really big right now and no <laughs> one can see me. <laughs> yeah. Assessments are such a hot topic. Yeah. And I, I think it really depends on what the organization is going for. If mm-hmm. you're driving towards a really high performance bar that requires a lot of knowledge and skill, I think it does make sense. Okay. You have to make sure that you're doing the right type of assessments. There's the question of, are we using assessments in selection as part Mm -hmm. of the candidate process? There's also, once we've made the determination that we want to hire you, you join the team and we're going through and trying to get a richer understanding of strengths. Are there additional things that we need to understand about the individual, their preferences, their personality, their kind of default behaviors, there may be tools to use at that point. And I I think it's also important that those types of tools be used in a greater context as well. Yeah. You know, as you are socializing into a new team, not just understanding, oh, I am a green on Mm -hmm. on the disc profile. How does that relate to the other team members that I'm going to be working with? And Mm -hmm. how do we communicate better? So there are the type of assessments that can help us understand, does somebody have, you know, the cognitive ability? Are they able to demonstrate a particular skill set or ability? And then there are the type of assessments that give us insight into those things that are less tangible. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned DISC. Um, And I think what's important when we get beyond, you know, you, you met the minimum requirement through and we assess that through some sort of test or tool. Then when we're trying to talk about managing towards strengths, those tools, we have to be very cautious that we're not using them then as labels. Right. That the mindset is it's giving us a common language to talk about things like communication styles. Mm-hmm. So what does the organization do in terms of providing any tools that are decided to be relevant to the work and then how is the leader making use of them and it's not labeling but as you said I'm like all right I'm bringing Jane in and how do I help Jane understand what this assessment is telling her about herself and we're all using the same words and nomenclature for that we have the same vocabulary I, th- I think we're making a really nice 360 back to our previous conversation about onboarding and where that line between Mm L&D and manager sits. 
Yeah. And it's it's so apparent that managers are really, really the crux of this ongoing conversation, whether it's onboarding, mm-hmm. whether it's these um, types of, you know, personality or working style assessments. It really all comes back to the manager to reinforce and be able to communicate effectively how it should be on used on an mm-hmm. ongoing basis. One of the mental pictures I have when we talk about things like strength-based leadership, the leader is, this is what it looks like walking around in the world. So the organization provides the resource. And it's like, here's the suit. But then the leader has to wear it and walk around in it. Mm-hmm. So when we have a, when we say we have a culture that values strengths and wants people to, you know, bring their best and that we're going to manage you based on what you're great at. Unless we put the suit on and walk around, none of that comes to reality. So the leader is the person that is responsible for, but also gets to be that cultural value or priority walking around in the world. It kind of reminds me of the red carpet when designers you know, put Mm -hmm. all of these celebrities into these fantastic outfits, dresses, suits, and the celebrities have to go onto the red carpet and get asked by all of these reporters, oh, who are you wearing? Mm -hmm. And they have to be that face of that designer. Yeah. They have to be able to articulate it properly. They, They obviously want to be able to represent the designer in the right fashion and that it is exactly what managers need to do um, mm-hmm. and their responsibility is for the organization. Yeah. Whatever the metaphor is for you, it's understanding what the parts are, mm-hmm. that everybody has a part to play in that process. Mm-hmm. And going all the way back to that article, we're talking about a relationship. So we have to be very open about everybody's responsibility I think that's one of the things that has kind of gotten us to where we are, the current state of work life, is that we forget that we're in a relationship. And relationships can be really messy, really rewarding. But the only thing that helps is that open, honest communication from the start. One question that I've had pop up a couple of times that I I don't know if it's fair to ask you or not, but I'm going to. (laughs) In a perfect world, what would a new employee's first 90 days look like if you were queen? Oh, like I said, probably not fair. <laughs> um, I do, I do really, and I'm going to shoot myself in the foot for saying this, but I do really <laughs> love having some sort of in-person element. And I've been a proponent of remote work for a very, very long time. I still am. And I think that effective onboarding can be done virtually. However, I do think that there's something about meeting people in person is something that is powerful. In an ideal world, obviously, there would be a sort of learn, do, apply model for hard skills training or even soft skills training, but Mm -hmm. hard skills training mostly giving people the space to learn X skill, practice X skill in a safe environment, apply X skill on the job, but still having it be in a safe environment, 
and then having them, you know, kind of releasing them into the wild to go on their own and, you know, develop the skill as their own. Let's, let's pause for a bit and talk about safe environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, there's physical safety. Like if Mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm doing something that requires, you know, use of heavy machinery or all the safety measures in place. And we're talking about learning. So I am assuming that you're pointing more towards psychological safety. Yes. In this context, I mean, someone is not afraid to mess up the system or that they're going to spend millions of company dollars or, you know, do something detrimental Mm -hmm. that would harm their career or the company. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's exactly right. Because it's about both. Yeah. It's always about both. (laughs) I think whether we're talking about physical safety, psychological, emotional, Mm -hmm. Are we creating an environment where it's okay to make a mistake Mm -hmm. so that people can make the mistakes they need to, to get Mm -hmm. to proficiency? Mm -hmm. So ideal world, we have a safe environment for people to learn, do, and apply both in the classroom and on the line. Correct. Correct. So what would be the next thing in the perfect onboarding process program? I think that learn to apply is sort of cyclical. Okay. Um, obviously, there's going to be more than one skill that people are going to have to learn. And if you're able to chunk that into smaller segments, mm-hmm. people are going to be able to apply much faster. So if you're able to segment responsibilities for an individual and getting them to a place where they can apply one skill out of 10 and, and kind of hold off on the other nine, then you as an organization are able to put them into production doing that one skill um, while they learn the other nine. So I, I think mm-hmm. that is one benefit of being able to chunk out that learn to apply into different competencies or skills. Yeah. Um, I think from there, it's obviously, if you have these 10 skills, it's putting it all together. Um, I think context is really, really important for people. And so how do these... 10 skills, for example, you know, come together into a holistic view of their role and how do you make sure that they understand throughout the whole process, um, but especially at the end, how those play into the larger organizational goals. Ideally, that support system is is married between an L&D or HR team as well as their manager and mm-hmm. ongoing coaching. It's a team effort. It's mm-hmm. a support system. One of the things that all of this conversation implies is understanding the investment. There can be such a rush to get people in their seat. We cost ourselves more, I think, when we take that approach. Mm -hmm. And in that ideal world, what I hear you advocating for is making an upfront investment that reduces waste and expense down the line. Mm -hmm. There is a business case we're taking as long as feasible and appropriate for the role. A thousand percent. Yeah. You could pack everything into four weeks, but then when someone gets out into the field or on, on the job, they're going to have to relearn everything and mm-hmm. they're going to be asking their manager, asking their onboarding buddy, asking their teams, and they're going to effectively be 
you know, doubling the amount of work that it takes to to learn that task where if you were to stretch out that time frame, have bits of production in between learnings, they're going to remember how to do that skill. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be any double work of, of retraining, asking, you know, team members how to do this. They'll know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and you're saving yourself time, even though it might not feel like it because your onboarding program then becomes eight weeks instead of four. Yeah. But you've added those times for application. There's an element of good change management embedded into onboarding. And it's recognizing that the person coming into the organization is undergoing a significant change. There are practical considerations for that. There are psychological and neurological considerations. And I think employers and leaders need to understand physiologically, people can't instantly get into a new job. It takes time for our brains to reform. So when you advocate for spaced learning and the cyclical approach, you're creating an environment that's going to allow those new neural pathways to form. So when people are, you know, released out into the wild, they'll be better equipped to be at 100%. I think L&D needs to clamor for taking a change management approach. All learning is change at the end of the day, but particularly when somebody is stepping into a new role, it plays such such a big part in their success. I love that idea that all learning is change because that's so, it's so true. Um, that is the definition of learning is changing behavior mm-hmm. and how do you do it? And treating all L&D as some sort of change management effort, I think would really help learning and development professionals um, and organizations to better equip anyone going through this change of, mm-hmm. of behavior, which is L&D. Yeah. We, we want people to be different at the end of a class. And frankly, leaders want their teams to be different at the end of a performance cycle. Mm-hmm. You want them to be better, producing more, more engaged, more satisfied. All of what we're talking about along the employee experience, we've got to pin in these points where we recognize we're constantly asking people to do different be different, think different. And it starts day one. You're no longer an employee of company B. You're now an employee of company Q. And have we created the setting and the tools and the support that will get you to that new as quickly as possible? Going back to the journey and vision, it's all about where are we going? Yeah. In this particular conversation, the vision is that you're going to be a productive, effective, integrated member of a team doing your best work. Yep. And there's the learning design to support that. But then leaders also need to have that understanding that I'm I'm not just boilerplating this and putting people through a production line. Going back to what you said of we've got to value the whole person. Yeah. The job isn't done when the program ends mm-hmm. and um I think a lot of managers sometimes think that, okay, so this person's gone through this really awesome onboarding program. They're ready to go. Mm -hmm. I'll see them in a month. I'm done. Yep. Great. L&D did all the work for me. And that's, that's not the case. Um, 
I love what you just said about, you know, we have to cater to different styles, different types of learners. And a lot of that is, is in that learning design, whether it's, you know, different modalities or different discussions, but you have to, to your point, remember that maybe even after all of those learning um, interventions, it's still not clicking for people. And so mm-hmm. having that manager intervention after the fact, I think is, is something that we should remember as that is a key part of, of the program and it is very, very crucial because they might not have gotten it up until that point. <laughs> Thinking about individualization, it can get wildly overwhelming very fast. And we are fortunate to live in an age of having a lot of new technologies that may make that not overwhelming. Do you think AI has a role to play in the onboarding process now and going forward? Yes, definitely. I think AI is going to have a play in pretty much every aspect of our (laughs) life. Yeah, that was, that was a, (laughs) like a softball question. I I think, I guess really it's what role can AI play in how we onboard people? Having AI determine precisely what skills someone has, what they are able to do, and then customize those training content elements after that. You know, I think a lot of the technology, as far as I'm aware currently, is, you know, okay, so you you can pass this assessment, so you have to take, you know, these courses. But getting really, really granular, I mm-hmm. think, is, is something that AI can can help with um, in, in terms of, of learner personas, helping to customize our content um, in a way that is, is meant for that person specifically is something mm-hmm. that would be so so cool um i think about the the individuals that i helped onboard this past couple of years and we had some people who were considered alternative profile who did not have any experience mm-hmm. in the role mm-hmm. um that they they were doing but you know of course they could bring other skills critical thinking yeah. problem solving etc which is the the way of the future right yes we, we have to we could <laughs> We could have this whole conversation about. Yes. And I think that um, I almost see it as like a matrix. Here are all the skills that one needs for this job. Here's this person's profile and AI kind of picks and chooses what makes the most sense for this learner um, would be so amazing um, from not only a learning perspective, but for the learner, because then they're right. not wasting time learning things that they know they're getting the right content Mm -hmm. that they need um and it just creates a really great experience you're seen and valued yeah you already know these 17 things we are not going to make you complete computer-based learning modules where you're clicking through 17 slides on them instead adult who brings experience we're going to start you here and it doesn't replace l d and leadership instead it frees the people up for more of that human interface, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I'm having an idea right now. I want us to go back to the question of in-person versus remote. Mm-hmm. I think if there can be more human interface, even if it's happening virtually, it does reduce some of that need for us to be in the same room together because we've compensated for the distance 
with more with mm-hmm. time and I, I do think that's one of the things we need to move toward is freeing up the human letting the ai do the the grind basically mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> but it gives learning and development the chance to be human and support the person in that process of change so do we treat onboarding as the first step in an ongoing process of constantly engaging in a relationship employee to employer to how are we using the new technologies that are becoming available to us all for the purpose of we see you we value you we're going to do everything we can so that you can bring your whole best self to the work that we've agreed to do together yeah i am a big proponent of remote work (laughs) yes um i do see value in in person Mm -hmm. as well um and it's a fine balance and i think getting back to engagement it's understanding that people are people Mm -hmm. and that we have things going on outside of you know this one third chunk of our life and being able to utilize technology to increase flexibility for those people um i think it is is how we we should look at it and Mm -hmm. it's not easy and we're still on a very very early road i think but it's i i i don't think you can go hard one way or the other Mm -hmm. it's a very very gray area it is and the fact of the matter is the type of change we are all undergoing right now it's painful Mm -hmm. it just is we're just in this point of pain because something new is forming which Interestingly enough, one of the definitions of engagement, and this may be a little out there for some people, it's a medical definition. It's the point during labor where the baby's head enters the the pelvic region. That's engaged. Engagement is it's part of labor. Which there's a beautiful wordplay in English there, right? That is, yeah. Because it's work. Yeah. It's work. Yeah. And you get great things as a result of that. It's so insightful because if you think about it, it's what you are putting in to get something great out of it. And that's exactly what organizations should be striving for is how from my point of this relationship, what am I putting in to get something great out of my employees? We talk a lot about the future of work. You see that so much, particularly if you're an HR talent learning person. Always. Always. It's always (laughs) there. I'm a little tired of it. I won't lie. But I've been thinking about the nature of work and kind of like the human relationship to work a lot recently. Because work is work, right? We were just saying it's it's labor. And human beings, I think, are made to be productive. Again, apparently all I'm going to talk about is this show alone. <laughs> the people that thrive in those settings are the ones that they're doing more than just, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. They, yes, they have hunger. But they're also making instruments, weaving baskets, one gentleman, you know, like made himself uh, a set of dice so he could play a dice-based football game with himself, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maggie's smiling at me. It was awesome. We were so sad when Mike tapped yeah. out. 
Yeah. Because that man could have lived there for like seven years. But he, he had fulfilled what he wanted to do and he wanted to go back to his wife. Right. And, but we thrive when we're productive. We're, we're better. And so it's this weird thing that we're tied to jobs and, you know, some people really resent that they have to work mm-hmm. and it's good for us to work. So how do we make it so, you know, whether you're doing your dream job, whether you're doing something that's really just to pay the bills, whether it's an entry level position, whether you're a CEO, how do we make work not about the labor, but about the joy of it feeding our souls. And when, there's really no one answer for that. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> and please. When when you talk about the the people in alone, I think about purpose. Mm-hmm. And that that structure, those activities, hobbies gave them a purpose. Yeah. And and whether or not that purpose was to stay as long as they could, whether it was to prove to themselves that they could do this, to, to mm-hmm. you know, show up. I think one guy who he wanted to win a bet with his brother. <laughs> I haven't seen that <laughs> That might have been a later season. <laughs> I can't wait. But, I can't wait. <laughs> but I, I think that dry, comes back to purpose, which is very, very closely tied to vision, which we've talked mm-hmm. about. And when I think companies are able to create that purpose and that vision for an individual... And in a really, really ideal world, tie that person's vision with the company's vision. Yeah. That really results in ultimate engagement. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of companies, if they're they're not, you know, if they're in industries that are not crazy interesting (laughs) to put it in the nicest way we are judging there are are things we think are better than others yeah i mean (laughs) there there are definitely industries um where i think about you know in the nonprofit space like Mm -hmm. the direct mission of that company is to do good and i think that's why people you know Mm -hmm. go into the nonprofit whereas you have other other industries that are so random like like um like random paper <laughs> right yeah paper exactly. companies or you know things, yeah. things like that that maybe people don't have a natural tie to but that's how you create purpose with your engagement efforts your mm-hmm. you you tie people to what your vision is um and i think yeah. i'm going talking in circles at this no, point I, but i think purpose is exactly <laughs> right and it it can be you know it's the it's the secret ingredient that is the purpose of the organization clear and can people connect to it in a significant way? And is it multifaceted enough that whether my purpose is, you know, a quote unquote higher calling or my purpose is to make a salary to support myself and my family, that those are all acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, again, back to alone. Some people, the money is enough for them to be the last person alone. Mm-hmm. For other people, it's because I want this experience. This is an important way to live for me. And when they stay connected to their purpose, they can be successful. And 
you also saw people whose purpose changed over time. And I think that's one of the things, if we, if I continue to make this connection <laughs> to, you know, the journey of being an employee, am I clear on my purpose? And when it shifts, do I reevaluate how it connects to the company? As a leader or as the employee? As an employee. Can you say that one more time for me? Yeah. So as an employee, if the mission is the thing that connects to my purpose, I'm here to do this great work. Mm -hmm. You know, I see value in a nonprofit that is there to do good. My purpose aligns there. Ten years later, I've grown, I've had a family, my priorities and my purpose change to where my purpose is more financially driven because I have different priorities than I did before. And have I reevaluated as the employee, does what mattered to me still connect to what the company's there to do? And if the answer is no, what do I do about myself in that mm -hmm. setting? Because what we can't do as employees is be disgruntled because the purpose no longer aligns. If I need more money, which is perfectly fine, and I'm working for a nonprofit that is always on a shoestring budget, I can't demand something that's not available. I've had employees before that their aspiration was X, but we did F. I will work with you as long as I can to help get you to X, but at a certain point, what you're looking for will no longer be available in this job. So are we agreed that there will come a point where if that still matters to you, if your purpose is still to go do this thing, that when that time comes that I can no longer support it, that we're going to part ways very well. And yeah, I think that's one of the things that if we're going to talk about purpose as a means to moving beyond labor to joy, moving beyond transaction to engagement, we have to be open to the fact that it may mean that people leave. I've learned this lesson over the past year or so. And the thing is, is that companies are entities that are doing what's best for themselves. Mm -hmm. And employees should treat themselves in that same fashion. Yes. And I think your example of a changing purpose is perfect for this because it just showcases that John Smith here has to do what's best for himself because his purpose has changed and that's okay. And as a company, again, in this relationship of trying to better each other between employees and employers, I, I think that goal is okay. And, and being able to accept that people leave, um, but being able to prepare them for that leave and to be better when they leave is something that companies don't really think about too often. But if you're you're investing in your people and they're doing better, doing well in their role, they should also be doing better, doing well after this role. It's counterintuitive. Successful retention accounts for the fact that people will leave. And that starts from day one. It has to be baked into how we onboard people that if we want to be successful, employee, your success is our success. And that may not always happen within the, the four walls, physical or virtual, mm -hmm. of this organization. And if it 
does go that way, it'll be bittersweet, but we'll celebrate it. I mean, to tie it all back to kind of onboarding to your point that you just made, companies have to remember having only, you know, 10, 15, 20 year employees is not necessarily a good thing because that means you're stuck in change and bringing in people um, will help to drive that change, Mm -hmm. which means you have to onboard them. (laughs) that's exactly right (laughs) yeah what are some resources that are important to you in your practice or that you think leaders need to to familiarize themselves with I am a huge proponent of design thinking Mm -hmm. I think if leaders and L&D leadership professionals are able to not even go through the full design thinking process, but take elements of that methodology, thinking about how do you quickly prototype and and make adjustments based on feedback, I think is really powerful in onboarding, in all types of L&D, but also in leadership. If you think about thinking from your employees' perspectives what do they need? Where are they coming from? What are all of these different factors that are playing into their experience that are maybe outside of me? Um, and then how do I help to problem solve that and, and you know, be open with that process is, is something that's really important for leaders. You know, something I love about incorporating design thinking into your, your toolkit as a leader, it just implies like experimentation and playfulness. Mm-hmm which can take some of the labor out of it. It lightens the load a little bit. Yeah. And I think it it ties very closely into agile methodology Mm -hmm. as well. I think for leaders having that transparency of being, of playing around with different things, I think is important because it shows that you are one willing to share your own vulnerabilities with your employees Mm -hmm. Um, but it also lets people know that, you know, this isn't permanent, that there is potential if it doesn't work out, that there are options to change. Maggie, what is something that you want to make certain gets said around this topic and conversation? If what's the thing that if I don't make certain you have a chance to say it, you'll resent me forever. Most important thing is the idea that onboarding is not just training. When I've developed really, really thorough in-depth onboarding programs in the past, my solutions encompass a lot of different things. Obviously, the training, the modality is really important, but it's also the systems and tools. Is there something that needs to be put in place to enable these new hires to, to do their job? It's the onboarding buddy. How do you enable the onboarding buddies to do their job? How do you motivate them um, to spend time and and coaching with their new hires? How do you enable the managers to do their job? So it's really this full, full ecosystem of training of the people around the systems, the processes, and it's going to be nearly impossible for organizations to get every single thing right. 
Otherwise, that'll be so, you know, time consuming, costly. Like it's just it's very, very unlikely that anyone will be able to get every single piece right. But if you're able to create an environment within this ecosystem for your new hires to feel included, to feel excited, to be prepared, that's what we're shooting for. So that's what I'd say. Yeah, I think that's a great thing. Take it all into account. Yeah. Think of it as all connected. It is. And get as much of it as you can, right? Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. It has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me in the comfy chairs. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or share it with others. You'll find Comfy Chairs updates and other thoughts on leadership and learning on Instagram at 123limited. That's O-N-E-2-3-L-T-D. Thanks again. <laughs>